I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. First and foremost, I'd like to apologize for the lack of new episodes published last week. I've been attending to a number of different issues, including putting together this jam-packed, nearly two-hour edition of the program, featuring a fascinating conversation with Randall Plunkett, the 21st Baron of Dunsany, one of the oldest continuously lived in estates in all of Ireland. Known in the press as the Irish death metal baron due to his love of extreme metal, Randall has become known in recent years for his controversial decision to rewild the Dunsany estate. In addition to being an environmentalist and a connoisseur of black and death metal, Randall is also a filmmaker, and he'll be joining us on this edition of the program to discuss his new movie, The Green Sea, starring Catherine Isabel of the innovative werewolf horror franchise Ginger Snaps. The Green Sea focuses on an alienated author whose life is changed through a chance encounter with a mysterious young girl. What appears at first to be a straightforward drama turns into a story featuring elements of magical realism and the ghost stories of old. Now, if you haven't seen The Green Sea yet, just so you know, in the second hour, I would say, there may be some potentially vague spoilers. Uh, you can, however, view the movie on multiple different streaming platforms. It's brand new, and I would highly recommend checking it out. It is something completely different, a breath of fresh air for more adventurous lovers of cinema. In any case, we use the movie The Green Sea to launch into a number of different topics, including Randall's thoughts on alienation and isolation, the creative process, the mysteries of life and consciousness, the struggles of independent filmmaking, and even things like Randall's rewilding efforts at the Dunsany estate, and much, much more, including delving into Randall's family lineage and what it means to him. So without any further ado, let's get right to the conversation with Randall Plunkett, director of The Green Sea. Welcome to Parallax Views, filmmaker Randall Plunkett, director of the fascinating new, I would say it's a hybrid of different genres. It's not exactly a genre film, 
but it's not exactly a straight drama either. The Green Sea, also the 21st Baron of Dunsany. Randall, how are you doing today? And should I call you Lord or Baron or just Randall? Just Randall for me, please. Thank you. <laughs> so if you could, uh, you know, and I know this is sort of a, uh, a question you probably get asked a lot about when talking about the Green Sea. How would you describe this movie? Because like I said, it's not a straight genre film, but it's not a straight drama either. You know what I would say? You actually uh, were probably the most accurate description I've yet heard of the film. It's definitely a hybrid. It's got a lot of genre in there, but it's not a genre film. It's, uh, I mean, I call it a supernatural drama. I think that's about the closest thing I could name it. it it's it's definitely um, a lot of things all wrapped into one. So it, it was actually a very un- difficult film to get made simply because of that. Um, nowadays, the way films are made, you know, you really need to be genre specific. People really don't like non-categorizable uh, films really. So you don't see too many of them floating around. I was going to say really briefly, uh, one thing it reminded me of was, you know, the uh, old ghost stories, uh, especially M.R. James. Uh, Was there any influence there? Um, not directly, but, but I love all that stuff. And, you know, I get, I get heavily influenced by the things, you know, typically what I do when I work is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be reading things. I'll be, I'll be watching things. I'll be listening to music and things, you know, there's an old term, you know, you copy and create, but also I would say as a caveat to that, I would say you, you, you pile things on top of your desk and eventually some of it will absorb into your brain. Essentially the movie follows a character who is a novelist, a former uh, metal musician, and she's very isolated, I would say very alienated by a number of factors, including her past, including the way the townspeople treat her. And she's trying to write this follow-up to her previous book, which was, you know, a hot seller. And she comes in contact with a young girl that sort of changes everything. And for me, the core of the movie is themes of alienation and then maybe redemption. I was wondering, how did it all come together and what were the themes you were going for? Am I on point with the idea that a lot of it is about alienation and maybe a redemption uh, for your main character? So I should talk a little bit, perhaps, if, I was, if I'm going to go down that road, I should talk a little bit about how these movies are made when I'm, I'm involved. I wrote the film, so so for me, it was heavily influenced by my own life. Not to say that I was a drunken alcoholic or anything like that, but um, to be a stranger in a strange land was very much the kind of the, the term I would use. Um, you know, it's very hard. I mean, you know yourself as 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 a as a someone who delves deep into into creativity, and 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 I'm sure you create stuff yourself. Um, the the journey of the writer is is often very difficult, and often it's very very lonely. And uh, couple that with being sort of a foreigner in a place like Ireland, where it's still very remote in a lot of par- parts of this country, particularly where I live. Um, you have this beautiful landscape, and you know this grim, almost Nordic kind of weather. And uh, to be dealing with your imagination, if imagination is your business, which a lot of the time mine is. Um, you spend a lot of time resonating with things. You're constantly uh, going through things in your brain. You're constantly repeating things. You're taking influence from everything around you. Uh, And so, 
you know, couple that with a lot of personal problems, you have a sort of, well, a walking, talking disaster, which I would say Simone is. And, and that was sort of what I was going for in the sense, because I think that the metal community is typically seen in almost a caricature kind of way. And although the, the final cut of the movie didn't have as much of the alternative aspects of the character, simply because we had to cut it for time, um, it, it's a sort of characterization that you don't normally see. Like I said, metal musicians tend to be quite caricature in most representations. Uh, I tried to make her as real as possible. Um, so, and, and that was heavily influenced by my life because I had a, a movie that caught a taste of success. And this was uh, The Green Sea, took a long time to get off the ground. And, you know, there was a lot of other projects that just never got there. So for me, it was trying to sort of uh, repeat that success and the pressures that come with repeating any kind of success. And that sort of was where the, the nature of the whole story came. With what I said about the theme of uh, Simone's alienation, and, and you know, I, I hope I can ask this in the correct way, but I, I know you've talked about, uh, as a Plunkett, you are the heir to the uh, Dunsany estate, which is one of the oldest uh, estates in Ireland that has been continuously lived in. And I think that a lot of people don't think about the ways in which having the responsibility of that estate, it's a great privilege. You know, it, it's a privilege, but it's also, it, it can be seen as uh, a life of servitude. It can be sort of stifling in a way. Do you think there's a relation between uh, Simone's alienation and maybe uh, an alienation that could be caused from uh, having a great privilege, but also a sort of great responsibility and having to have a life of service on, on your end as uh, the sort of caretaker of the Dunsany estate? Absolutely. I mean, that's again, a lot of that that sort of uh, aspect of her came from my own personal uh, experiences, this sort of this sort of uh, uncomfortableness of the local town. You know, the 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 idea where you're sort of you're everybody looks at you and you go in the supermarket and whispers. All of that came very much because that was very much a representation of my local town. It looks very similar to my local town as well, my ad. Um, and absolutely, because that's the the problem is. You write what you know. And for me, I know about solitude because I live in a, in a very isolated place. I spend a lot of time on my own because, well, that's just the nature of my lifestyle. And you, the house, and, and the house is very important in the film. It's almost a character of its own. The house is what she carries. You know, it's, there's also that representation of the turtle. And the metaphor of the turtle is, is, is I suppose, double-ended because someone, the turtle carries its home on its back. You know, it's not able to move as fast uh, as other creatures, but it has, it has the weight of its responsibility on its back. And that was really a metaphor to my life because I essentially am a turtle myself. I have to carry that, that big stone building with me and all the history that comes with it. And the importance that she, she puts on her own house and all the representations of her past are all there, everything from the, the amplifiers, the, the, the artwork. It's all her history. It's all her story. And it's, it's very important because it's exactly the same in my family. All our, rep, all our history is on our walls. It's portraits of the, of the relatives. It's, it's artifacts. So it was very much mirroring that. Of course, she's not an aristocrat or anything like that, but it's the same kind of idea. And if you look at the house and if you look at it very carefully, the way we shot it is very uncomfortable because the, the handheld 
movements of the camera are very jerky. It's very almost transgressive the way we try to do it. And if you look at the house, it's very, very dark. There's a lot of, we use a lot of the, the windows for the lighting. So there's a lot of scenes where she's almost in pitch darkness. Uh, and if you look at even the walls with the antlers and things like that, now, if you've never been to my house, but if you, there's a lot of dead animals and, and I'm vegan. So for me, it's also a juxtaposition to that, but you see all the antlers and they're almost like a thorn bush. It's almost intoxicating her home is so as much as it, it's, it's her most important part of her life is, is that home is that space. It's clinging on to the past. Uh, it is also the thing that's slowly killing her because it's only when she gets solace, when she goes outside in the elements and is able to enjoy the nature because she doesn't find any of that really that solace in the city, in the town. She can't really go back to her past and live that again. So she's stuck in her present, which is the house and her dreams come from the from the wild, if, if you like. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008 and he goes by the motto flow adapt change as Lao Tzu would say and he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement now again this applies to California listeners of the program Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist and if you'd like his services then please contact him at alexander u that's alexander u y o o dot com and he can be reached by email at therapy at alexander u dot com or by phone at Three two three eight three four nine eight two eight. That's three two three eight three four nine eight two eight. This is only available once again to my California listeners. But if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. If we could, and I, I just wanted to detour briefly from the film itself into, since I have an American audience largely, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the Plunkett family and the history there and the Dunsany estate. So we're the oldest family in Ireland that's still in existence. So we're, we came with the Normans. Um, so in 1066, uh, a lot of your listeners will know and viewers will know, um, that we, the Normans invaded England and off the back of invading England and defeating the British, uh, we were granted lands in Ireland. So a whole bunch of our clans, if you like, came, came to Dublin and we took over the lands around Dublin. This is regarded as the pale. You probably re recognize the term beyond the pale that came from Ireland, actually. So I live on the borderline of the Norman pale. 
so there's a high concentration of castles. And in fact, my family would have owned most of the county at one point. Um, so we built the castle around the 11th century. And we've been here more or less ever since, other than a very short period where we were in exile when Cromwell, who is, I suppose, our Hitler in Ireland, because he came here from England and murdered everybody, uh, including my great, 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 great uncle, who was the Ireland's only patron saint, St. Oliver Plunkett. Now, to be honest, St. Patrick is normally the one everybody talks about, but St. Patrick actually isn't Irish. He's, uh, I believe he's Welsh or Scottish. Uh, don't quote me on him being Scottish now. He could be Welsh. Um, but the thing is, so so St. Oliver is actually the only Irish patron, patron saint. So we've we've always been here and we've always had very sort of celebrity type uh, personalities throughout the years. My great, great grandfather was one of the godfathers of fantasy literature. Lord and, Dunfany, um, he was a big inspiration for people like H.P. Lovecraft. Exactly. And and many of and even Tolkien. In fact, I heard a story that Tolkien got The Hobbit uh, greenlit by his uh, by his publishers by bringing a Lord Dunsany book with him and during the pitch. So that was shows you how the amount of influence. But he's the kind of one of the, the most important fantasy writers that most people probably haven't even heard of nowadays, simply by bad luck, because Ireland w became a republic around the time uh, when my great grandfather was still alive. And he was considered British by the Irish and Irish by the British. So he doesn't have an actual nationality really. So because he fell into that kind of crack, he's, uh, he's largely forgotten in modern day times. I was going to add to that really briefly too. I think there's uh, some similarities between uh, you and the, the sort of fantasy writer, Lord Dunsany. There's elements of, of sort of fantasy in the green sea, or at least I would say magical realism in the green sea. And also I believe that, the Lord Dunsany was actually a, a big animal rights advocate. So I, I think you're uh, keeping up the family traditions in some ways. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's funny because people, you know, when, when you're born in a family like mine, you have all these people who've achieved a lot. And, you know, I'm a creative. So the first thing people always ask me is, oh, but what about your great grandfather? Have you taken a book of your great grandfather? Is this inspired by? And when I started my career, I kind of felt very allergic to that. You know, I was kind of like, ah, I just want to live, you know, represent my own statements. I want to do my own thing and not be uh, in the shadow of what is a genius in his own right, my great grandfather. But as I've gotten older, I've embraced the fact that, you know, my great grandfather was a genius and it's actually a, a privilege to even be asked to, to even be, you know, referenced as even having the possibility of taking influence. So I, I actually am very proud when people ask me that nowadays. But the truth is, yeah, no, it's, and I, and I had this conversation a lot with people. Do you think it's the, it's the genetics that have just passed on and, and we just have that part of the brain that makes us want to be fantastical and fight for animal rights? Or is it the actual location that has its influence? And I haven't really got an exact answer yet. So I'll, I'll leave that to the jury. And I was going to say as well, I think when it comes to the history of the Dunsany estate, there's also been ups and downs for the Plunkett family. I think at one point there was almost uh, one of your ancestors may have almost bankrupted the, the family fortunes. So I, is there sort of a, a struggle, I think, for, you know, people that are in a, a family like the Plunketts between that sort of obligation to keep the estate going and maybe wanting to be free of the estate. Does that, does that sort of make sense where I'm coming from with that question? 
It, it does. And I'll, I'll clarify that. So the one who you're talking about is Horace Plunkett, who's probably one of the most famous members of my family. And he was a, you know, when you're born from privilege, most rich people and most privileged people, there's a, there's a ruling class and there's usually very little crossover between them and, and, the, and normal people. Right. And especially in Ireland where we have a, you know, the ruling class was fairly well to do and everybody else was fairly poor. But my great, great, great uncle, who is Horace, he um, he very much wanted to uplift the people. He really was a defender of, of, of the average man, which is unusual for someone in his place. And he spent our family fortune. And bear in mind, we were very rich back then. He built two and a half thousand schools in Ireland. Uh, with the idea that if you could educate the people of Ireland, we could stand level with the British who were at the time um, were running the country and treated us pretty badly, may I add. Uh, but the only way to, to cure the, the, the imperialism was to stand level and we'd stand level with an intellectual position. And uh, that was heresy by the British. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he tried to do all these things. He did another thing, which was the co-ops. He started the Women's Association. He started the credit union banking system that would protect, um, you know, borrowers and rather than feeding all the money to corporate bankers. So he started all these kind of socialistic ideas to help the Irish people. And unfortunately, um, the it, it didn't really pay off in terms of our finances. And my great grandfather managed to pull us out of bankruptcy. But I think there's always been any of these families that have been there for a long period of time. It's, it's sort of like being uh, you're born into a position where you are always going to have to sacrifice things in life. And there's always, I think, in every every uh, person who set, has their path set for them, there's always this journey to, I suppose, they try and reject it. And every good movie, for that matter, has that. You know, the hero has to go through a long journey. And there's always, I think, in the second act, he rejects the journey or he or she rejects the journey and then eventually gets pulled back into the into the journey. And that's how every good drama starts. And it's the same in life as well, I'm, a, I'm afraid. And there is even myself. Uh, I rejected it for years. I think my, my poor father thought at the time when he was dying that I would probably just sell up the place and move to L.A. and, and be a filmmaker, which would have been very... Um, should we say very typical, um, but we didn't do that. In the end, what's funny about, about these kinds of things is that uh, your duty suddenly kicks in. It's, it's kind of like, kind of like age. It just suddenly, I woke up one day and I sort of thought to myself, I can absolutely not do any of the things I had been talking about for years. And, and that's what happens. And, you know, I look at people like the princes of, of, um, of England, not, well, not Prince Harry, but Prince William, for example, and he probably had the same thing. He knew he had to do, he had to serve his country. He hadn't, didn't really have a choice. He was born into that position and it comes with benefits and it comes with negatives. The negatives is he'll never, he'll never be able to enjoy the normal things in life and he'll always have to sacrifice. And even though it looks rosy from the outside, there's a lot of pressure and, uh, and you always have to be on it. And that's the same thing with me. Uh, you know, things have changed. We don't have the servants and 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 the, the people like they used to. In fact, even Irish people, they're educated, they're well-to-do, and you can't even find people to do the labor anymore. So what used to be households full of staff are just normal houses with with, with people in them. And the, 
the problem is now is is all the duties haven't have only increased, not decreased in time. So j- just for listeners that may be thinking, oh, it would it would be, you know, just great to live in a castle. I wouldn't have uh, second thoughts about it. What made you sort of conflict it about um, taking up the estate? Because I know you've talked about, you know, at times you felt it would be a burden when you were younger or before you took over the estate that you felt maybe it would be a life of servitude. I think your quote is saying that in The Guardian. I was wondering, how would you explain those sort of conflicting feelings uh, to my listeners? So it is servitude, by the way. Absolutely. It is absolutely. Because let me explain a little bit about how, how it works. So it's, it's a massive 900-year-old property. You are overcharged for every piece of labor that ever comes. I mean, any tradesman that comes through the door sees the towers and, and there's an extra zero added. So you know you're always going to have to pay extra for everything. It's also fragile because 900 years of architecture, well, there's holes in it. You plug a hole in the roof, well, suddenly you got rising damp from the ground. I spend my whole day, every time it rains heavily, I have to go around checking roofs because a leak can happen and I go around touching the walls to see if I can feel any moisture. And, you know, that sounds like a little thing, but when you have to do it constantly, when, every, when there's wind, I have to close all the doors and f- pull, the, pull the shutters to try and stop air, air tunnels coming in because it can blow a painting off the wall. When it rains, the, there can be water coming down behind a painting creating rot. It's cold. So if I leave it too cold, it destroys the interiors. If I leave it too hot, it destroys the interiors. So you're always on a balancing act between trying to preserve, trying to be comfortable and have a normal life. And, and the, the truth of the matter is it's nearly impossible. Um, the truth is it's, it's, it's a privilege because you are surrounded in history. Things you, you're, you, all around you is, is, is the, the remnants of struggle. And, you know, I sort of adapt it in that my life is just the same struggle. You know, we've been through 900 years of wars, of, of, of recessions, of plagues, of all that stuff. And, and 900 years later, nothing really is different. The only difference is, is that when, I, when I'm struggling against people, I'm not using a cutlass. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that every effort, every extra bit of money, every um, waking moment is, is in preservation. And, you know, sometimes it, it would be easier for me just to say, you know what, I'd love to bang on the heating and just be comfortable and have a have a have a really easy going life when it rains i don't give a shit but the problem is that's not that's not the reality with a castle it's it's fragile and and like i said it's not just looking up it's looking down it's touching the walls i, I mean even i had a, a a painting that i was showing some people and i realized there was a bit of like um mold growing out of it and what i hadn't realized because i didn't look behind the painting is that there had been dampness coming from behind the painting and it was actually imprinting onto the painting so that's money that i will now have to spend trying to restore the painting because i'm a caretaker and and that's the thing is like you're you have to caretake all this history and and you should understand that my family is a bit like the old the irish equivalent of the samurai we have all these very stringent um, should we say philosophies? We always must bring new things of our time, so we're always enriching our, our, our heritage. So you know, my my, you know, I'm not allowed to sell what I didn't bring. So I can't sell anybody else's contribution to our history. 
you know, for example, no matter how difficult it is, those are the kind of ideas that we live by. Um, so we have to enrich, we have to protect the past, and we have to look forward. That's a lot to do, believe it or not. Most people just, you know, are worried about where they're going to get lunch. So, but that's me. I have to, I have to worry about the future. I have to worry about the past, and I got to worry about the present constantly. And and the thing is, when you have that level of uh, concerns, and I will say the word concerns, uh, it's it's very taxing. Um, but at the same time, it's a privilege to serve something so so wonderful because most people, you know, they worry about paying the bills. They worry about you know, maybe Netflix and chill. And by having all these responsibilities, it actually in some ways simplifies life because it makes you modest in many things because, you know, it's, it's me that sits there sweeping the floor. It's me that sits there, you know, checking the things. It's, it's a privilege to protect something that, that is 900 years. You know, it's, it's probably, you know, the most wonderful thing is, is to protect something so great and to be part of that greatness. Even if you're only a small uh, piece of that, you know, and that's, that's, it's really amazing to have that, you know, to have that duty. And for the longest time, I, I, I didn't see it that way because I was selfish. I kind of wanted my own thing. I wanted to have my own enjoyment. I wanted to like not have to worry about any of these things. But, you know, I think with time, with age and, and the, uh, the weight of people's sacrifice uh, becomes more apparent as time goes on. And that's where it was the turning point for me. You know, there was I don't have to suffer for people trying to shoot me or cut my head off. But there's one, you know, when the Cromwellians came, they rounded up all my family and lined them up, nine of them, and executed them all. You know, the bravery of never, never, you know, kissing the ring, of fighting to your last breath. When you think about that and you think about those are your family, those are your grandfathers, your uncles, and you think to yourself, well, gee, I'm a little bit cold or, oh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable or, oh, God damn it, I have to worry about whether the roof is leaking. Those are very small sacrifices when you compare. And if you think like that, I think everything suddenly becomes wonderful, even the hardships. So I, I want to get back to the film, but can I, I know for people that own estates that are uh, you know, much older, I've often heard people say that they can fill isolated by it. Is that ever uh, something that you experienced? Can it be maybe uh, socially isolating to take care of an estate? I'm assuming it would have been in the past, but maybe less so now because we have all the sort of technology to keep in touch with people. I would say it's very isolating and still isolating. And I'm going to explain why. There's always a disconnect with anyone who's got privilege. You know, there's going to be jealousy. There's going to be hatred. That That's normal. The problem is you couple that with this, the sociological problems that we had in Ireland, the historical issues. There, in Ireland is a particularly unusual situation because castles and, and, and families like mine typically get put into a box with all the imperialist kind of things, which still resonate today in Irish culture. There's a lot of people who still, should we say, harbor a grudge for historical reasons. So I am regularly shall we say, penalized for history. I have had films rejected. I've had, I've had applications of mine blocked. I've had a huge amount of prejudice. In fact, if you ever read an article of mine in any major uh, newspaper in Ireland, you will read, and if you go to the comments section, you will see maybe 50% people will 
be positive and, and be care about the work. The other 50% will be calling for me to be ousted out of my place, to have my land stripped from me, uh, to, you know, and those are for historical reasons, not for, for me personally. Like, you know, if you go and, and read an article about Bono, for example, you'll see that most people think, you know, whatever, he's Bono and the 50% that don't like him, don't like him because he's Bono, not because of his historical past. And that happens to me a lot. Like I have regularly been uh, picked on because of my historical past. So, you know, I can really isolate, uh, I can really resonate with people who who get picked on for their race or for their for their heritage, because it happens to me on a regular basis, even now. So with that, it does create a, a sort of a, a gap between you and everybody else, especially in your own country. And um, it happens, unfortunately, very, very often. I, I recently uh, submitted my film to a film festival and I know they never watched it. And I, uh, I heard uh, from, from a friend of mine who's, who was in the, should we say, was involved with the festival that um, she told me that the programmer had a personal problem with me because of my heritage and refused to even allow the film to be watched or even included. Now, film festivals are a bit of a lobby anyway, and there's a often, you know, they pick their favorites, but to have yourself penalized because of, like, like I said, your heritage and they're not even to give you a chance is it can be somewhat uh, sour and it, it does make you sour. So that does create a sort of a distance. And that, that for me was always been there and has always been, it was actually, if anything was even worse when I was growing up. So I think that that distance has always been there and the isolation, you know, we're an Island. And uh, you know, I, even as a, as a person who I consider myself to be Irish, I always still am treated a bit like a foreigner. Yeah, and and I, I can definitely, help. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I was going to say, I can definitely see that uh, for the character of Simone in uh, The Green Seat, she is sort of isolated. And I think in a lot of ways, she finds her uh, sort of reprieve, her redemption through creativity. Exactly. And that's where I'm at. And that's why I say a lot of it is very autobiographical because in the movie, she's an American. Now, I was born in New York. So although... Although I've lived since 1990 in Europe and I've spent most of my life here, I would consider myself Irish. I only have the one passport, but you know, I, I do still have that accent that doesn't quite fit right in my, in my area. And like I said, I look a little different you know, I dress a bit like Simone. Ironically, the, the character Simone dresses like me, everything from the leather jacket to the, the pajamas. I mean, if you see me at home when, I, when I'm on an average day, when I'm working, I pretty much look like Simone, a male version. <laughs> so it's not, it's not so, uh, you know, it's not so sexy, but, but that's the part of it. That, that's why I sort of tried to be as authentic as possible and, and to make it as personal as possible because the isolation part of Simone's character is, is, and her, if you look at her life as a character, she has, she's gone through several transitions. She obviously was that, that heavy metal star turned writer. And she now, you know, lives a very sort of isolated life in this strange place. That's, you know, she doesn't really belong there as such. Yet she finds such a, uh, she finds such beauty in it. And she makes her own world within, within her place. And that's very much what it is for me at Dunsany. You know, I, the creation, creativity makes me happy. And I only really feel alive when I'm in the forest and when I'm working. And that's that's very much what Simone does. And, you know, the rest of her life is is sort of 
it's it's very, I would say, difficult. You know, she it's very repetitive. It's her just always in 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 a constant sort of uh, uh, loop. You know, and and the and the creative aspect of her life is very taxing on her, as you see, even the way she writes at the beginning of the movie. I mean, she writes in, in drips and drabs. That's very, very much how I write. And I was um, going to I was going to say, too, I think it's interesting. Uh, the book that she did, that's sort of the the hot seller that that uh, she did really well with is called Outside. And she sort of is the quintessential outsider in some ways. Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you picked on that. And and that's that's the truth that was picked for that reason. And uh, if you look at the cover of that book, um, and it's it's it features in a couple of times in the movie, and, and it's in a poster in her office is there, but also when the guy gives the book, it's a young girl reaching for for a tree, you know. So so there's always that kind of almost like aspect of 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 uh, fairy tale with a sort of a semi sort of aspect of a, what you'd see in a, in a black metal album. Um, and that's, that's very much the influence of it as well. And, and like I said, I was very inspired by the, the aesthetic of, of heavy metal, particularly black metal, because that's, you know, I'm very into that sort of thing. I, I was um, going to say there, there's an article in the guardian that refers to you as the Irish death metal Baron. And I had a listener when I told them that I was going to have you on the show, they said, Hey, he's not wearing a death metal shirt in that uh, picture for the article. That's a Dark Throne shirt. Is he into death metal or black metal? <laughs> well, I would say I'm into both, um, to be honest. I mean, I love death metal and I love black metal. Um, death metal aesthetic is a little bit less interesting. I mean, the the black metal aesthetic is is very theatrical, which is what I like. Um, but the, the thing is, I, I love it all. Um, I'm very, very eclectic with my music taste. In fact, I, I'm, I'm heavily obsessed. Uh, I buy a lot of physical media still. I'm, I'm still a big buyer of CDs, vinyl. Uh, I'm also an extreme uh, hi-fi fanatic. Uh, so like I said, it all goes back to, to, to Simone again. I mean, if you look in her room, she's got all these bits of, bits of amplifiers and preamps and speakers. I mean, that's exactly how it is if you come into my office. And, and so I, I, I very much mimic that. So the, the, I suppose the death metal baron, I, but then again, if you ask the average Joe in the street, they might have heard of death metal. They have no idea what black metal is. You know what I mean? So I think the in, in fairness to the Guardian, they were just trying to keep it easy. Um, so they couldn't have said grindcore either, because I mean, I don't think most people in the street will know what grindcore is. So this is actually a good segue, uh, because I found out uh, there's one aspect of this film that I wish it would have came to be. And that's that I found out that you actually were trying to get Scott Connor of a band called uh, Exathser. Uh, to do the soundtrack. Uh, could you talk a little bit about Exacer and that sort of black metal band and how it influenced uh, the film, even though Scott didn't necessarily do the soundtrack? I think uh, his story sort of seeped into what you were doing with the character of Simone. Yeah, so firstly, I should say I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's a, he's a, he's a genius. And he's a genius with a lot of baggage which I find him very interesting because I mean, part of what I do is I, I get interested by things, by stories, by people. And I, you know, I, I was always interested in his music. And then I saw a little bit about, about him in a documentary called One Man Metal. The Vice was documentary. It's a great documentary, a Vice documentary. Yeah. So, and it's great. And, you know, the way he spoke, 
I really resonated with him a lot just by what he was saying. And, you know, I ripped off a lot of his, uh, his, his ideas and his comments. I won't say ripped off. I certainly took a lot of inspiration from what he said because he was very articulate with the way he was, how he, how he engaged with music, how it was so much part of him and how it really didn't give him what he needs. And I think, I think he says at one point, and I, and I quoted him in the movie and I said, you know, music doesn't really give you what you need. doesn't give you what you, what you put, you put in. And I, and I, I think I directly referenced that, that interview in the movie um, thereabouts. And um, you know, and, and it's interesting because when I had the concept of the movie, I was so, I found him such an interesting personality, but also his music, it was so sad and, and, and poignant for what I wanted. And, and the fact that he was a one man artist really felt that it was just a perfect parallel to what I was doing. So I reached out to him. He was a very hard person to get a hold of. Um, and I think it was Aaron Turner of ISIS managed to connect us. And the thing is I had a chat with him. Now he was going through some difficulties. He was changing house. And he didn't have a studio. In fact, a lot of what he was doing, he was recording in a bathroom, I think, at the time with his phone. And, you know, he didn't have the, the capabilities of writing the soundtrack. And he, it was also to, to write any soundtrack is very difficult. And he, he stepped away from his black metal roots and was doing Doomgrass. Right, the right. Time. The bluegrass that he, yeah, it's Doomgrass, I guess is what he calls doomgrass, it. Yeah. Doomgrass, So I'm a fan of that as well, actually, funny enough. I mean, I, like I said, I, I, everything he touches is gold in my book. Um, so I was happy to, to kind of let him. And as I said to him, when I, when we talked, I, I kind of said, look, it's a creative aspect. I kind of want something new. I don't, I don't, I'm willing to open my, uh, you know, open my mind to whatever you were going to regurgitate from your musical darkness into the film. Because, you know, I had obviously a vision for this soundtrack of the movie, but an idea is one person's idea. When other people add to that idea, it becomes, it transforms into something else. And many of the ideas I had were built on by the people I worked with. And I know how that works. And I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I know I'm, that sort of aspect of creativity in the film business really works for me. So I said to Scott, like, obviously, you know, I'd love you to do all this kind of like dark kind of synthy black metal stuff. But if you don't want to go down that road, if you think, you can do something else, something completely different. Not necessarily your doom grasp, but maybe something in between the two. I'd be very interested. Now, unfortunately, due to the pressures he was under, he couldn't really. He didn't feel like he could do it and 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 meet the targets. So we, so it didn't work out that time around. Now, ironically, since the film, he's in a better place, and we were talking. So he might get involved with me on the next movie. Oh, that that would uh, be great. I mean, that for, would be for great. me. You know, Scott Connor is very interesting within the whole black metal scene, in my view, because, you know, I watched the movie uh, Lords of Chaos a while back, and I know people take issue with like, oh, this isn't accurate. This isn't accurate. But I think Jonas Ackerland in that movie, I think he does show that, you know, we sort of romanticize the Norwegian black metal scene and how violent it was and whatnot. But really, they were they were you know, kids that let things get really, really out of hand. And, you know, I, I don't think a character like uh, Varg Vickerens is unintentionally funny as he may be. Uh, you know, he's a very troubling figure. I mean, he's committed crimes. And, you know, I don't think when it comes to Scott, I don't think there's this sort of pose going on either of, oh, I want to be seen as a, 
Mr. Badass Devil Worshipper, you know, which I think to normal people that comes off as kind of geeky anyways. I think with Scott, he just sort of wants to make this music and, you know, he's very interesting in that I don't think he wants the attention of the black metal scene. I think he just makes music for himself and that's why he's gone on to do the Doomgrass stuff. He's very independent and very individually minded. In a lot of ways, I don't even know that I would categorize Exacer in the sort of typical sort of black metal vein. I mean, there's a lot more to it than I than I think. It's very hard to categorize his music, I guess, is what I'm getting at. A lot like it's it's hard to categorize, I think, the Green Sea. And and the thing is, and and I would agree with you 100%. And the thing is with, with him, he he is a genius, literally. I, I, would, I would argue he is a genius. He may not be everybody's cup of tea, just like my movie. But the thing is, he is a genius in his own right. He's able to create things, and, and he's, he's authentic. Like, everything you see is, when I spoke to him, I found him to be a very polite, very intelligent. You know, it, the thing is, he, he has a lot of darkness in his soul. Like, he's, he's not had, obviously, an easy life. But that's why his music is so authentic, you know? I mean, his, his, I mean he's one of the pioneers of depressive black metal, I would argue. And, you know, it's... He said to me he got offered a lot of money and to to kind of continue to do what he does, but like Varg, you know he didn't he didn't want to fake it, and he had reached the point and he got to the end of the, his black metal journey. That's what he told me, and he said you know he just couldn't fake it. He wasn't willing to fake it. You know he said I would have had a much easier life if I'd stuck doing black metal. I would have been able to sell tours, T-shirts, all that stuff, and Doomgrass is. Let's be honest. It's not exactly a financial uh, winner, is it? The aesthetics of it, everything, it, it doesn't sell heavy like, 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 you know, you know, if he'd done what, what Varg had done. But even Varg himself, you know, had the same problem. He just sort of, he wasn't willing to fake it. And uh, that's why I have a lot of respect for him. And he stood by his guns, even though financially it put him in, I'm sure, under a lot more strain. And that's why I thought he was so right for the movie as well. You know, an uncompromising artist is exactly what I think was required. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess what 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 I was trying to get at with with uh, Connor is, you know, there's a lot of black metal musicians that do the whole like, oh, fuck, I hate these fans type thing because it's sort of part of the aesthetic. But I think with him, it's very much like I want to do what I want to do. It's not it's completely authentic. It's not part of some gimmick or part of some aesthetic pose. Yeah, exactly. And, and like I said, I think artists uh, mature, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, when he started doing all that stuff, when he had the original black metal uh, aesthetic, he wasn't, he wasn't faking it. He was in a, in a very dark place, but also I think, I think he transitioned out of that. He's, he's not at all what your run of the mill, you know, look at me. I'm so evil kind of, kind of black metal. He's not that at all. You know, and, uh, you know, he's uh, that's why I thought he was so special as, as an artist, because, I mean, he is just the real thing. And he's he's very, you know, he's he's a nervous kind of character. I don't think he's very comfortable in, in, in big crowds or anything like that. He's just very, you know, he's creative all the time. So I think when you're that level, when your brain is switched on that level of creativity, it's it's very hard to function around lots of people. And it's very interesting because I met. You know, the other person who was going to do the Green Sea, because once Scott wasn't able to, we had to look for a replacement. Now, the next person you're going to like, 
was very interesting as well because it was a very different choice creatively. And we went with Justin Broderick. Uh, oh, of, I'm a huge uh, fan of Justin. I Godflesh, Yesu. I, yeah, so, that's probably my top band. So m- me too. So Justin for me is the other genius. <laughs> now, unfortunately for Justin, Justin signed on to the movie originally and we were going to work with him. And I think he is just one of the most interesting creatives today. And, 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 you know, he just, he's another one just like Scott. And if you look at them both, I mean, they all do different things, but they both do the same kind of thing. They both go their own direction. They're not really worried about what other people are thinking. And they do a lot uh, where Justin does a lot of collabs. So I tried to reach out to him. Now, Justin was a bit easier for me because he was in Wales. And he is another one who's who's all over the place in terms of like he's doing so much stuff all the time. And so unfortunately with him, it was a scheduling issue that we didn't work because we we actually were behind on the film. And originally he signed on. And then by the time the film was at a place that it, it could be created, it just didn't work out with his scheduling and et cetera. So unfortunately, we missed the opportunity to work with Justin. Um, but Justin is he, he did a few cuts for the movie. And I got to say, like, he is really somebody. I love I love Justin. And that's actually uh, and, uh go on. I'm sorry. Sorry, and, and 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 it's interesting because one of the things I wanted to do as a creative, because you know, the problem for films, I, I'm a, I'm a big lover of alternative music in, in in um in films. The problem is I find there's very few filmmakers who will take a chance on, let's say, a, an obscure artist. And I think some of these guys are so amazing. They make they make amazing albums and et cetera. And a lot of them financially can't manage to make it because I'm mean, especially solo artists. I mean, you know, when you're when you're doing stuff like Zather, you haven't got a tour behind you. You can't go and you can't do a mastodon on it and, and go off on a worldwide tour. You just don't do that. So film, especially film music, if you're doing really abrasive stuff, I mean, that for me is I love abrasive music. I love, you know there was another movie I was working on and I wanted to partner up with a guy called Merzbau because he creates these, these sonic attacks, I call it. Uh, and he's a noise artist from Japan, but I really want, you see, I really like these very extreme kinds of music and I'm just trying to channel these, these kinds of concepts and embed them in my own style and filmmaking and create something that, that stands out a little bit in the marketplace because it's stuff that I love. It's stuff that has influenced me. So naturally I want it in my films because as well, it shines a light on some of these people who really don't get enough, enough appreciation. And it, and it just, it, it's another, uh, it's another uh, feather in their bow, if you like. So I, I will be definitely working with people like that in the future because it's, it's just su- such a, you know, they've given me so much inspiration when it comes to the creativity and being able to actually channel their actual creativity into a movie is just for me would be the ultimate dream. I was just going to add to that. I, I think it's interesting that you were drawn to guys like Scott and, and Justin Broderick, because, you know, I think what drew me to Justin Broderick and, you know, musicians like Scott Connor is that, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, metal brings to mind, you know, bands like Manowar and, you know, bands where it's like all about, you know, bang your head. Right. But and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But I think people like Justin and people like Scott offer new avenues when it comes to metal. I think particularly with Justin's work, we sort of get feelings of somberness and melancholy. It's not all about the headbanging. And that, that's why I wanted to 
segue into with the Green Sea. I think people will look at this movie, see the cover. They, they may see Catherine Isabel's name. And I want to talk about Catherine. But first, uh, they may see her name and think, oh, that's the girl from Ginger Snaps, the Scream Queen. And they may be expecting something that is, uh, you know, a balls to the walls horror film. Of course, you're known for uh, having done zombie horror movies in the past. But this is actually very different from that. And in a way, it reminds me of, you know, Justin Broderick going from a band like Godflesh, known for its sort of heavy, aggressive sound. And Justin ended up doing Yesu, which was a much more sort of somber, meditative type of music. Uh, maybe you could comment on uh, the way in which the Green Sea, I think in some ways people may think first, oh, this is going to be a horror movie, but it's something completely different ultimately. And I think much more meditative and much more somber. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, so I, I, I love horror movies, but, you know, when people ask me, like, what, what's your main, what are your favorite films, I don't normally list horror movies as my, my ultimate inspirations, you know, because I watch a lot of classic movies, like a lot of old Hollywood from the 50s and the 40s, that's, that's a big influence of mine, and I love, like, art house films and stuff like that, so it's very, you know, at the as well as all the horror stuff as well. So when I when I get all the in, my inspirations together, it, it really does create a sort of melting pot of influence. And the thing is, when you look at someone like Godflesh and you look at what Justin did with, with Yezu, he's constantly changing. And I would say, I would argue that both Scott and Justin do the same thing. I mean, on different spectrums, but they do the same thing. They're very much very similar personalities. They they're always doing something different. They're always trying to challenge. And it's very hard from a film perspective, unlike music, to do anything challenging. And I'll tell you why, because the industry itself doesn't allow it. And let me explain with music nowadays, especially nowadays, you you know, you're trying to do something creative. There's not a lot of money, perhaps. But you can get music to the audience with a fair amount of success. You know, you have Spotify. There are various ways to market your music. There's YouTube. There's all that kind of stuff. With film, it's very different because film requires a lot of money, which music requires some money, doesn't require as much as film does. And also there's a lot of people involved. You're held back. There are gatekeepers and the, those are the distributors and the distributors do not want anything original. They have pretty much said that to me. And I've had two movies that I've tried to get through through in the last six, seven years, right? Both are hybrid genres and both times i have been absolutely squashed because the distributors will say well we don't want a this and that we want a horror movie or we want to we want to drop and dramas have to have major actors in it otherwise nobody cares horror movies have to be very should we say tick a lot of boxes i, I want to real, real yeah. quick i wanted to add something to that and it's it's funny that people have to put movies into these like hyper specific categories because you mentioned old Hollywood movies. And, you know, I jokingly tell people when they ask me what my favorite horror movie is, I always tell them, well, Citizen Kane. And people always laugh, but <laughs> there is, there's elements of the horrific in a movie like Citizen Kane. I mean, where he ends up living out the last days of his life is like, it's a Gothic mansion that you would see in a, you know, a Boris Karloff movie back in the day. And there's something horrific about 
Kane's sense of isolation. So I think even the best dramas have elements of the horrific, often in a more psychological way than maybe, you know, uh, the way people think about horror movies when it comes to slasher movies. But I think you can find elements of horror in a lot of different genres. So it's kind of sad that we want to hyper categorize everything. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's really it holds us back because the people because there's so little money left in, in movies. Right. Because since the, the, the rise of, of downloading and VOD, it means that indie films are being squashed. I mean, I can be honest with you guys and say there are very few indie producers today that are able to make any real money back for their investors. Right. And that's that's a solid truth now. And the reason is because people aren't really buying physical media anymore. The TV broadcast world is is less and less. VOD and pay-per-view are pretty much the only real way for an indie filmmaker, a real indie filmmaker to make any money. And honestly, it, it's I'd say I haven't met that many filmmakers who have actually, I would say if there's very few, I've met a couple of bigger ones who are different category, but that's a completely different thing. It's almost near impossible to do, to make money back. In any, you might be able to break even, but anything under a certain amount, because either you need massive actors, in which case the expectations and the money is, is huge that you have to get back, or you're doing really, really indie stuff, which basically there's not going to be much representation because there's no PR. And distributors basically just want to you know, sell quick, so they stick it on YouTube or they stick it on something, and they get a quick, a quick buck, and that's it. That's the marketing they do. The marketing of the movie is, is a five-week project. That's it. So it's very fast turnaround. And maybe you get to see it on, if you're very successful, you get to something like a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. But I should tell you that Netflix plays ridiculously small money for those movies. And if you consider when budgets are millions, Netflix maybe pays 20,000, 30,000. If you're maybe, maybe a bit more, but that's not going to get you back your million budget. And so a lot of film producers are suffering because their investors are getting burned. And distributors are, are using it as an excuse to sandwich um, buyers, uh, sandwich filmmakers for less. Like where you used to get, let's say in the UK, for example, 150,000 for an indie film uh, 15 years ago for, for the territory of the United Kingdom. You know, I've known guys who've made 5,000. And they're, they're still making the same quality of movies. They're, they're not shit movies. They're just, that's, that's what the market is. But the money has gotten so small that we, we as filmmakers can't make money back, which means the only thing that people are wanting to buy now are very straight-laced stuff that they can say, right, it, this is a horror movie. We'll put it on Netflix. That's it. And yeah, you, stuff that doesn't have a lot of uh, flavor necessarily, which is weird too exactly. because – you know, my, my brother was watching The Green Sea with me recently, and he's not into the same stuff I'm into. He's not into the old grindhouse, you know, type movies and whatnot as much as I am. But he watched the movie and he said, you know, that was really good. And it looked like, uh, you know, a, a big budget film, even if it was made on a lower budget, it was a really slick looking, uh, well-paced movie. And he enjoyed it. He thought it was something different, something with a different flavor. So I think there is a market for this kind of film. But you see, here's the problem, right? So so I, if it's not a financial success, because movies like this, technically, there, there's a, there is a couple of ways you can be successful financially, but it's very, very, it's, it's a roll of the dice. So the festival route is a very important way for an indie film. Uh, and you probably typically hear, you know, films need to go to Berlin, they need to go to Cannes, they do the Sundance thing. But the problem is with that kind of way of doing things, not only is it a who you know business, 
but also festivals like that are looking at a couple of things. They're looking for, you know, does it fit a political statement or in terms of like, what is their theme of that festival? So if you are very lucky, you'll nail the right combination and you might, your film might get championed. But if you're the large uh, masses, you're probably not. And that means that they're the, the value of your film is very, very low. So we struggled a little bit with the Green Sea because not only did we get released uh, during COVID, which, and let's be honest, during COVID, there was a rise of horror movies, which was which was interesting because horror movies were basically at a bit of a recession for the last few years. I mean, there was a big surge in 2012, 2013. It began to tipper away around 2014, 2015. And, and there was a, like a bit of a drought. And you probably probably realized that there was a bit of a drought there where there wasn't really a lot of stuff where in 2013, there was a mass amount of stuff. You had American Mary, you had Maniac, you had all these kind of like cool little indie movies that were just coming out and just bangers. It's beginning to come back now in, in sort of since the COVID and then like drama completely died. And because our movie was, a uh, it wasn't easily categorized. We sort of fell through the cracks a little bit with the festival route, but saying that the truth of the matter is, is that it's very, very difficult now to try and make anything that's not, going to fit in a box because financiers don't want to, they want a sure thing. Buyers, they want a sure thing. And, and, and everybody's very scared to take a chance. Now we were very lucky that we got a distributor who watched the film and was very interested in the fact that it was a, a bit of a different film. And so they championed the film, but that was very, very hard for us. I mean, it took, it took us a long time and we, you know, it was very hard for us to get there. And, and as you said, there is some, some quality to the movie. I mean, we were talking about Catherine Isabel earlier and Catherine Isabel is normally seen in a perhaps a slasher movie, you know, and she she often is, you know, working with a very sort of, should we say, a minimalist material where in this she was challenged very much. In fact, when I met Katie, she was having breakfast when I pitched this movie at her and she was at my house and we were having breakfast. And I said to her, what what if I made a movie that we uh, we worked on together? And it's not going to be a horror movie per se. And it was going to be a movie where you're not a gorgeous girl running around in a short skirt in a forest, but I'm going to make you look like, a, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make you basically not look hot. And you're going to be a, a sort of a, an unlikable character with a lot of problems. And um, it'll be a 50-50 whether the, the audience even likes you at the end of the movie. Like and, the actress uh, from, what was that movie, Monster? with um... Exactly. And that's what I said to her. I was like, it would be your... Irish version of the monster. And uh, and she said, you know, hell yeah, absolutely. Because it's so challenging for an actress, especially a horror actress. And, and Catherine is largely regarded as a screen queen. It's ironic because she's not even been in that many horror movies, but that's what she's known for. And it's very hard for her to get something really challenging under her belt. And that was the, one of her complaints. She always said to me, she'd love to be invited to do a period drama. That was her dream. No, I wasn't really the right guy to, to give her a period drama, but I offered her this and she was really into it because it was such a different kind of character for her to play because to be that, you know, and it is, it was a risk, this film for me, because one of the main criticisms we had when we were trying to get it funded was she's too unlikable. Nobody's going to get behind her. And that was even to the end when I was editing the movie, I was really, really worried because that was the big problem with were people going to resonate with her at all. Because that's a that's a, a high risk, you know. If if your audience doesn't like the main character, they're not going to sit through the movie, 
And uh, and that was a big risk. And that was one of the reasons why the uh, Irish Film Board didn't back us because they said it's too, she's too unlikable. And ironically, I would say that uh, by the end, you may not want to be her best friend, but I would say that you can resonate with Simone. I feel a lot she, of empathy she, for her, to be honest. Well, I did too. But like I said, at the time when I released the film, I was absolutely terrified that everybody was just going to say, she's too unlikable, didn't want to watch the movie. Because when I showed a few, a few of my friends, there was one or two comments that were like, you know, she's an absolute bitch. I hope she dies. You know what I mean? And, you know, that was a very scary thing for me because like I said, if, if, if people hate your main character, they're not going to watch your movie. So um, if I could add something here too, the, the reason I wanted to talk about Catherine Isabel is I think in addition to sort of being pigeonholed at times as a scream queen, I mean, she's also, I mean, she's a very, very uh, stunning, beautiful woman. Right. But I, I think the, the sad thing with an actress like Catherine is, first off, people forget she's been working in films since she was a little kid. I mean, she was the title character in a movie with Charles Bronson called uh, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. Uh, she was in the Christopher Lambert movie Night Moves. And th these movies were made when she was like nine, 10, 11 years old. She's been acting for a long time. And, you know, she is an attractive actress, but she also has a great deal of versatility as an actress and she can really express a wide range of emotions and also just the changes that happen in a character. And this is the one movie, I think, where she really got to show off all her acting chops. Uh, she's not just the scream queen. She's not just the uh, sex symbol. She gets to really show what she's made of as an actress in this film. Yeah, and that's what I always wanted because I always believed in her. Um, and like I said, we've known each other for a while now. I think we met in 2015. So I've known her for a while. Now, we've never been able to work together because things just never panned out uh, financially. So this is how I, I got her to work with me is basically a project that we were trying to do together. Just It just kept getting delayed. And so I wanted to do this movie. And uh, like I said, I think we 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 originally had a, a healthy-ish bu budget. And, um, you know, and it was going to be a different kind of movie because, I mean, even even the way it is, I mean, it's, it's fairly different. I mean, the the uncut version was, was was about 20 minutes longer and there was a lot more supernatural stuff going on. But the um, but it was a very out there kind of movie, especially in the indie realm. And uh you know, unfortunately, nobody we had a lot of financiers who backed out simply because it was just too different. Uh, in the end, I had to get I had to get a massive bank loan to pay it myself. And, uh, you know, it took me years to pay it all off, but it was worth it. And, and you know, I think to see Catherine, um, who just she's magical in that film for, for me, because, I mean, I learned so much from her. And she's such a she's such a, a, a beautiful actress in the sense that she's so expressive with her face. She's and she doesn't overact. In fact, by do, the less she does, the more the more power she has on screen. She really knows how to also. This is something that I never seen in any other actress. She knows how to turn her face at the right time and to catch the light, because I've never met another actress who's just able. She she's so aware of film because she's been working for so long. She's so aware of how her face moves and how it, it hits the light. 
she's able to just turn her face at such a perfect angle every single time. Because even while I was editing this film, she, she's, she's, it's, it's amazing how she's able to just use her eyes. And that's the thing. When, when I was casting her, that was uh, the hardest part of finding the, the opposing character was I needed to find somebody who had a lot of similarities to her. Now, that's not easy to find. Lucky we got lucky with Hazel as Hazel has a very expressive face as well. And she has very big eyes because a lot of this film, a lot of this story is told with her expressions. And again, it's not, it's not overdone. I mean, Katie just, just kills it every single time. She, she has so many little nuances that she does with her performance. It's, it's, it's really an impressive, she really is one of the most underrated actresses, I believe. And uh, it's, a sh it's a shame that she doesn't get more of these powerful movies um because i think she could really be be in the sundance realm of, of smashing smashing dramas and smashing these more challenging performances because often the material that she works with doesn't give her that versatility in her performance when she has it she's so able i was gonna say you know i had an actress on lynn griffin who's probably most known these days for having been in the original black christmas i think she plays the first victim in black christmas 1974, uh, but she was in a movie with Catherine called 88. It was a Canadian sort of action it, yeah. thriller movie. I, I think she's brilliant in it, Catherine, but uh, I asked uh, what it was like to work with, with Catherine. And one of the things that Lynn noted to me was uh, she has those Betty Davis eyes. You know, she does have a very distinct look and she's very expressive with her facial expressions. And I was just wondering, are there any stories that you have about working with uh, Catherine Isabel, because I know she went very, uh, maybe a little bit method for this movie. She went so method on this movie. At first, you know, when I started making this movie, I actually thought at one point that she hated me. And I actually was so uncomfortable with her. And we were all a bit scared of her because she was so intense. And we weren't sure if she was acting or actually she had just, we were seeing a different part of her personality that none of us had seen before. In fact, even my cameraman at one point whispered in my ear and asked me if he, if I wouldn't leave the room because he was so petrified of her. And she was an absolute monster of a, of a, of a character. And, and it was really translated in her performance. So we got her a house and she was drinking nonstop in the house. I mean, my, uh, one of my employees had to go there and collect her bottles every day. And it was just, there were so many bottles. We thought, holy shit, she's gone. She's got Robert Downing Jr. on us. And, but she would turn up and she was impeccable as a professional because she would, uh, she'd be able to just, you know, and our schedule was constantly changing due to climate changes and, and whatever, because it was, Ireland is crazy for climate. There's no consistency. So at one point it was snowing and we had to change all our outdoor shots because there was too much snow on the place and it looked, it looked outrageous. So you know, she would just, you know, she would get the, the, the sides. That sides is the script for the day, right? She'd, she'd eyeball it for about five minutes. And then she would go there and recite everything perfectly. And it was just, it was just nuts. And there was one scene where she beats up her husband. Uh, you know the scene I'm talking about? Yes. And when we yeah. got there, she was spinning around. And that's what she was doing. She would just spin around in a circle. And uh, I was looking at her thinking, what the hell is she doing? And uh, because I was trying to, be all pro because when you're working with someone who's worked with the very best and I sort of felt a bit like an amateur and she was spinning around, spinning around and she was swaying from side to side. And, and when, you know, and that, that aggressive scene is quite aggressive and there wasn't a lot of room there and the stunts were pretty rough. Um, 
And it took me about, you know, at least a, an hour or two before I realized what she was doing. She was spinning around to create herself to be dizzy. So she didn't have to put on being drunk. And she later said to me, it's like, when you try and fake drunk, it never looks right. But if you're actually dizzy, you're trying to, you're trying to hold yourself in balance and you're swaying naturally. And that puts on an authentic performance. And you know what? She was absolutely right because she actually does look like a, like a drunkard in that scene. There was another scene where, uh, yeah, I mean, there were so many of those, those kind of little nuances that she would make. And even the way she kind of would just turn her face. There was the scene where she had to, uh, well, without giving any spoilers, where, with a conclusion scene where we, where we had on the road. We did, had to do that once because we were we were on the road. We were very very. We lost a lot of days, unfortunately, we are, because of the the issues with the budget. We lost nine days of production, which in an indie film is is a lot of days. We we ended up with twenty one days instead of uh, thirty. So we had to really rush our scenes, and because it gets dark in Ireland at four thirty, we literally were sandwiched, and we had about we had one take to do that entire sequence where she's at the road. And I mean, and and that's why some of the movements are crazy. I mean, to get her to that level of uh, of a performance first time around really is a testament. And she was just she was just pulling herself to pieces for that one scene where where she's screaming down the road. And uh, and I I mean I almost couldn't call cut, you know, to be honest. It was very voyeuristic. Um, but yeah, no, she was full of these these little nuances and even some of the the timing, her pace and timing is just something uh, something crazy because. I mean, a lot of the the lines were pretty funny. I mean, there's a scene where she says, "You know, happiness is for dickheads," and that was in the script. But but she, the way she she delivers every single time is just is just nuts. Her her pace is just is, and that's what it is a lot of the time with with delivery. It's not just about having having a good script. It's it's about how the actor you know delivers uh, with with and it's it's in her pacing, the pacing of her voice, and the way she did it was just. I mean, when she did that scene, I near, uh, nearly, I was in the back room when that scene, and I nearly cracked up simply because she was just so, she was so Catherine. <laughs> so what, what, uh, before we wrap up, there were just one or two more questions I had, if you have the time. Um, and I Of know course, I have all the time over. in the world for you. So the other thing I noticed, and I don't know if this was uh, intentional or not, but I, I think we see changes in the character of Simone, throughout the movie. And, and one of the points that I thought was interesting was, you know, as you said, she's sort of dressed in very frumpy attire uh, throughout most of the movie, but there is sort of a, a short sequence where she goes out on a date and then the aftermath of that date where you sort of see her without the frumpy attire. And she looks absolutely stunning as one would expect uh, from Catherine Isabel. Was that sort of meant to show that she was changing a little bit or going through a bit of a transformation was that intentional it, it very much was and and the thing is the the thing is with 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 Catherine with Katie is is we wanted to show her where she was in her darkness and uh the character that 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 uh, takes her out on the date is very much uh, his fact his name is Justin <laughs> actually over Justin Broderick by the way <laughs> um not that it is actually Justin but you know what I mean but the thing is is when she gets taken on the date and it, it, I wanted to show a sort of sign of innocence coming back because the whole nature of her putting on the outfit, of her being a bit shy, it's, it's almost very immature. 
And it's almost very schoolgirlish in the way. And that's what I wanted to do because a person has multiple levels. And even the most sour, the most angry person has a certain amount of innocence. It may be, it may be very, very deep down, but there's always a certain amount of innocence. And I, I, uh, that's what I really wanted to showcase with Catherine. I wanted, I wanted to see the nasty side. I wanted to see the sympathetic side. I wanted to see the nurturing side. And I also wanted to see that, that little bit of innocence somewhere there, because we are all at one point children and the child, the inner child never really disappears. It just gets bogged down amongst the other things, the other emotions. And, and that's what I really wanted. I, I wanted to, sh to show that Katie was a full, a full 3D personality. You know, she was, she was not a great person, but she still had these sympathetic moments, these, these moments. And that was one of the moments where, and even the, the complete style change. I mean, she's, she's very much a fish out of water in that, in that scene. Uh, and she's very uncomfortable. I mean, that's, we, we put them together and, um, and even herself, you could see that she was very uncomfortable in that sequence when we put her in that in that scene. And it was very authentic, but it also such a different shine. Even the way we shot that scene was was different from the rest of the movie. I don't know if you noticed, but we shot very conventionally. That's the only sequence in the film that it's shot straight on. I mean, they were very much mid shots. You know, the rest of the movie we're shooting either very close or there's a bit of a handheld jerk. That is the only scene in the film where it really is a, a very traditional way of shooting. Um, a medium shot, medium shot, wide shot. It's literally the only scene. And that's because that's the only piece of normality in the film. Because everything else, we're either, we're either captivated, uh, captivated by the supernatural. She's either in the, in the, in the downward spiral of, 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 of the darkness of her life, or you know, there's something morbid or dark coming on there. That's the only scene where she's a person, if you know what I mean. And that's that's why we shot it in a different way than the rest of the movie. I, I mean, it was we tried to be subtle with it, but um, that was the reason. And and it is it is very much because it shows contrast and it gives it gives the journey her journey uh, much more weight. And the fact that she doesn't get the guy at the end because we were very tempted to have a resolution to that, but I thought in the end. You know, relationships, there's, there's many, when you go through life, you're going to go through these romantic moments. And more often than not, they're short-lived and you never see them again. You never hear them. And even though there was the possibility of the return, I thought by rewarding her at the end of the movie with, you know, she manages to survive. She manages to save her house, but she couldn't have everything because life never gives you everything. Hollywood gives you everything. Life doesn't. And that's why in the end, there was a decision made that we, she couldn't have romance and have, uh, have her rebirth. That's, a, that's another story. And that's what I wanted it because, and it shows the possibilities because that moment when, when they're having their, their, their time together, it shows what could be. She could, if, if the night went well, she could be a normal person. She could have that relationship and she could suddenly get out of life, get out of her darkness that way. But ultimately her darkness is solved by herself. She does it alone. And that's, and that's when she finishes her book and she can finally leave her home because she can shift all that weight, all the, the pressure that she has of, of her own baggage. She can shift that baggage away and then can grow and that growth. And if it's interesting, because if you look at the, how she, how she finishes, even the way she was dressed at the end of, of the film, 
She looks well, well groomed, but she still keeps her, her dark, you know, her leather jacket. She's wearing a sweater, but she, she almost looks like she's matured, but not so much that it's, it's, it's a complete transformation. And that's what I wanted. I, I wanted, you know, uh, salvation doesn't come like day and night. It comes in, comes in, in sways. And I found that it, it was uh, what I wanted was, was a stepping stone to having a better life, not having a better life, if you know what I mean. And that's what I wanted. Because I, I think that's one of the things that loses people, I think, because Hollywood will have us have the, the happy ending with, you know, there's a kiss on the stairwell and there's, there it is. But that just doesn't happen in real life. And I think when you've, when you've done the bad shit that she's done in her life, you can't reward her too much. Otherwise, I think I would have lost some of the authenticity of the character and the yeah, story. I was going to say it reminds me of, a, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Abel Ferrara movies. And people always say to me, oh, Absolutely. The, the, the ending of, of Bad Lieutenant is so sad. And I, I mean, I guess it is in a way because Harvey Keitel doesn't make it through. But really, the movie's about him trying to redeem himself because he's a bad cop. And, you know, he does what the nun wants at the end. Right. You know, and so it's yeah. not entirely a people see it as a sad ending, but he does get his spiritual redemption. And I think we see that a lot, too, in, in the Green Sea. Very much so. And, and the, the thing is, it's it's the end of a chapter. It's not the end of the story. And that's always something to remember, because life is a series of chapters. And that's another reason why we broke the story up into chapters. But apart from the fact that she's she's rewriting her world. Life is a bit of a chapter, and that's the end of that chapter, you know, and, and, and her creativity saves her life, but it doesn't give her, you know, it gives her the means to have the next chapter. It does, it's not the end of the story, and that's very much what I wanted to, to say because, like I said, you know, the next part of her story, well, that's still yet to be written. I was going to say in that regard, do you think, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that creativity is, is very invaluable and important. I also think our, our social relationships matter. I, I think people forget. I don't hear people say as much that we're social animals anymore. I, I used to hear that all the time growing up in school. And I, I think there's truth to that. I think there is uh, salvation in, in the social and our relationships. And I think there's a glimpse of that, that she's starting to maybe get that at the end, that she, you know she wants to be more involved with the world around her. Absolutely. And that's why she leaves the house at the end of the movie. Because at the end, I mean, she sold the house. Now, the house was, you know, was her her lifeline to the past. But the, the past is the past. And she's, you know, has to move and live in the future or live in the present. So it, it's putting those things in bed, putting those things to bed. You know, you can never go on. And, you know, she was never going to survive to the next chapter of her journey till she could leave the past and forgive herself for the past. And that's why the, the, the shifting of, of the skin, so to speak, or in this case, her house, was so important for her journey, because that's, that was the, what was, was, was holding her back to that place. So her next, you know, her next journey will be elsewhere, and that's what was important. And I think you're right. She was, by being in that part of her life, being in that house, by being in that isolated place, she was denying the social side of her life. And by leaving that side and, and re-entering society again, because by the end of the movie, she's talking to she's talking to her agent. There's all sorts of possibilities on the, on the forefront. A book tour, who knows? She's joining society again, and as a person, you know, and as and who's who's now gotten over what she's done or what what she potentially has led to being done, you know. So the last two things I wanted to mention first, the influences 
uh, for your sort of creativity. I know that you're influenced by a certain Japanese author, Murakami, I believe, the author of Kafka on the Shore. Could she talk a little bit about him? So Murakami is one of the most interesting writers. I, I, you see, I resonate a lot with Japanese stuff. And, you know, a lot of people are resonate with Japanese stuff, but I, I resonate with a different aspect of the Japanese stuff, particularly how they structure stories and how they particularly like the obscure and like the surreal. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by things that are surreal because I, I find that life is, a, is very much about interpretation and truths don't always come to light. So I was very, you know, and, and the, the Green Sea is a movie that it, it does explain a lot, but there's a lot left that's still kind of like you still had to piece together how would the whole thing works. And that's a lot like human consciousness, at least how my human consciousness works. And uh, Murakami does very simple things. He takes characters who are very average Joe uh, and he sprinkles them with very strange characters, obscure women who, who are flawed, talking cats, um, all these kinds of like very sort of almost supernatural aspects to the characters with these very sort of what look, what starts like straight-laced dramas end up delving into the deep end of, of the fantastical. And that's very much what the Green Sea is. So I suppose when I, why I resonate so much with Murakami is that's so much what I wanted to do from a film point of view, but I've never been allowed to do because it doesn't work with our westernized style of storytelling. It, it's, it's very difficult to put, put that kind of story into a film and make it work with an audience. I would argue it's even very difficult for it to work in a narrative that it fits in a book. It's only, I think, because the Japanese kind of aesthetic and the Japanese kind of culture is, uh, is still very, so we say, sexy to us Westerners. And I, I find that's probably why it works so well when it's translated, but it's, it's still very difficult to mimic, to, to mimic that kind of thing in cinema. And uh, I, I found that his books really resonated with me, particularly because the, the sexualization of the characters and yet this delving into the fantasy world of having talking cats and, and elevators that, that have open floors at midnight to different worlds, all of that was very interesting to me. And, and at the same time, it nods a lot to the kind of influences that are in my family. Like, like my, my great-grandfather very much did things like that in his books, creating worlds within worlds. And, and that's very fascinating for me. And they do that in Japanese uh, literature a lot. And it seems to be very popular. And I think the hybrid kind of concept works a lot easier in Japan than it perhaps it does in the West. Again, I think they're just a little bit more daring with their, with their, um, with their ideas. And it's not to say that Western ideas aren't daring. There's plenty of very avant-garde kind of movies. But I think there's a little bit more forgiveness to that kind of – to that society more than perhaps our, our sort of MTV Westernized society has. It's harder. And um, so I was very inspired by that. There's another great book that I really take a lot of influence by, and it's Woman of the Dunes. And they made a very good movie out of it as well. And don't ask me the name of the writer because I completely blanked. But that's another another fascinating story because the simple the idea itself is so crazy. It's very Kafkaesque. And uh, so I, I take a lot of inspir inspiration by those kinds of ideas. And, you know, 
I take that influence and then I, I sprinkle my own personality into them, the things that I like, my appreciation for metal music and the the kind of the the concepts that that injects into it and then add a bit of my own issues. You know, my my themes in my work tends to be there tends to be a lot of draw upon the, the environment, the 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 mystery of the wild, the concept of duty and 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 being a stranger in a strange place. If you look at all my films, there's always that common theme. And I try and pull a lot of those and 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 the the obligations of the parents that those are tend to be themes that I tend to fascinate by. And I and I absolutely love I focus on characters who don't have an have a voice, because if you look at any of the characters in my films, they tend to be characters who are perhaps not likable. They tend to be characters who are deeply flawed. And, you know, I was uh, I studied film in, in university and one of my favorite film directors was Nicholas Ray. And Nicholas Ray arguably was the first filmmaker to kind of really delve upon these very flawed characters who had a lot of mental problems. And if you look at uh, James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, I mean, he's a young guy who's about to come apart. He's about to have a nervous breakdown. Or if you go to Humphrey Bogart's character in A Lonely Place, uh, he's a guy who's fighting with his own personality the whole time. And, and his passion for violence is just, is just it, and he's a fairly unlikable person because at the end, he suffers from so many, you know, demons that it, it gets in the way of his own of his own journey. And those kinds of characters for me, I always got very excited by that kind of concept because I, I felt that that was so authentic to me. And I was able to, to sort of see a lot of myself in those characters. And it, incidentally, uh, In a Lonely Place is one of my most enjoyed films. I don't know if you've seen it. I, I have not seen A Lonely Place, actually. I have to you, do that, I guess. You, Absolutely get it because uh, it's Humphrey, one of Humphrey Bogart's best performances, uh, and he plays a scriptwriter. Funny enough, and he's a scriptwriter who gets accused of murder, and the problem is everybody, you, 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 the audience, don't know whether he did it or not because he's such a violent person. Like he's, he seems like a friendly, nice guy, and then he just switches and can get very, very aggressive, and he, he has a fascination for violence, which is unhealthy. And it gets in the way of his of his relationships and et cetera. And he ultimately uh, gets into a lot of troubles. Like I said, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a flawed character who deserves a second chance, but maybe doesn't necessarily gets, gets it from the audience, if you know what I mean. And those kinds of, you know, and they're not popular notions because in the end, we like things to be finished and we like things to be tied up. The idea of whether you're going to, whether you like a character at the end of the film fascinates me because just like Humphrey Bogart, he's a he's a victim in that film, and he's a he's a he's he's a, an aggressor in that film. And you're sort of balancing. Well, how do I feel about him at the end of the movie? And that's very much what I'm fascinated by. I, I like to tell stories of people who are who are cowards, who are who are angry, who are who are flawed, and their their own human flaws messes them up in the film. I, I was going to say end, real quickly. We sort of see that a lot in Simone. There's particularly a moment, and I'm not spoiling any anything here, but uh, she's talking to the kid, this this strange child that enters her life, and she doesn't know what to do with her, and she wants to get rid of her initially. And she's like, you know, kid, I don't know what you're running from, but trust me, running from your problems won't solve your problems. But that's actually exactly what 
Simone does. In a way, she has her own cowardice, her own, as you put it, flaws, and she's sort of running from things. And in a way, the movie is is her journey towards, you know, stopping that cycle of running away from what her problems are. Yeah, and and it's and it's it's funny because uh, Hazel Dupe, who plays the kid, and the fact that she's called the kid is because she's never even given a name. We never, you know, she never even gives a damn to ask. Now, what what personality doesn't ask a name? There's a there's a girl living with her and she has no name. She never even asked. It's 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 a very it's it's an interesting thing because it's it's a mirror image to perhaps a younger Simone. And if you look at it, if you look at them together, they're both dressed the same way. The kid character is a mimic to Simone's daughter. You know, it's 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 you know, it's very much a mirror image. You know, we we always, when we look in the mirror, we often see our, our childhood self. And that's how I kind of wanted to, that's why I was very fascinated by creating a, a completely, you know, uh, a childish character to, to make Simone challenge herself and ultimately go to, to, to the next stage of her journey. Because even the, the fact that she's so nasty sometimes to the, to the kid, and yet the kid never has any any real... Like she never kind of talks back or it has any kind of like aggressive, like she's pretty pure the whole way through the film. In fact, it was very difficult for me at the time to try. We had to try and, and um, basically make Hazel look as innocent as possible and including making her as non-sexy uh, non as possible because she's obviously a mature woman herself. And we had to try and, and make her look as much like a kid as possible. We had to remove any kind of the possibility of anything, anything sexual from it. Uh, and I was going to say, how old, how old was Hazel when you made this? Hazel was 16, 17. So she's very much on that almost, you know, that stage of almost being a Lolita type. And we, and the funny thing is when I met Hazel, she was still very, you know, she was still very, um, she was still very young. And by the time we got to the movie, she was very developed and uh, and we had to myself and the costume girl had to try and hide as much as possible because we wanted her to play younger. She was supposed to be younger. But lucky for us that that throw the big jacket and the big T-shirt and the hat. She she looks like a child. You know what I mean? And it was very, very good for us on that respect. So really, she's she's a sort of a, a spirit animal for for Simone in a lot of ways, because it, it, it represents the, the her childhood innocence in a lot of ways, you know. And like I said, even the fact that they fashion each other and even at the end, when there's the sort of that moment on the sand dunes, when when she asks her, you know, I, you know, I've, I've thought of a name for myself. I mean, the fact that she chooses her own name, I mean, it pretty much is a, is a, is a hint to where the whole thing was going. Yeah, that's the really great thing about the movie for me is, uh, like I said, I I think that there's a lot of magical realism to it. It feels very grounded in the real world, but with elements of the fantastic. And there's a huge aura of just mystery to a lot of it and, and a sense of wonder. Yeah, and, and that's what I owed, I think, but that's what life is for me a lot of the time, because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say because it's not, it doesn't fit in a box because, you know, life is about 70% realism. And then in my life is about 30% mystery. You know what I mean? And and fantastic things happen all the time. You just have to be open to see them. You know, there's miracles every day. And that's what 
what I sort of wanted in this film. There's that there's like strange because when you live in a place like mine, you see crazy characters appear. There's always these these strange things, these kind of almost supernatural elements. I mean, look, I live in a castle. You know, there's always the idea of is there ghosts? Is there secret passages? You know, there's there's always that in a place like that. You know, and every so often I find things that belong to my relatives and they're they're ornaments from a past time, perhaps strange cult-like devices and things like that. There's always a certain a certain sense of the supernatural. And that's what it is for me as well. That's what that's what captivates, especially once you start to inject the imagination. And the, and and if you, the more open you are to those things, the more you see them. And that's what I uh, what I really wanted to show in that movie is is something that is a little bit left of center than your average drama because it is essentially a drama but it's a drama with a twist and the twist is that there is there is this sort of sort of supernatural element to it fantastical even so the thing i wanted to close on and i, I promise this will be the last bit there's a lot of points in the film i mean we've talked about some of your similarities with the character of simone and i, I think even her uh, sort of finding a refuge walking amongst nature uh, is another similarity. But one thing that really stood out to me was uh, the way the townspeople, with the exception of the of the man who ends up uh, wanting to take her out on a date and maybe striking up a relationship, a lot of the townspeople treat her uh, horribly. You know, they think she's a killer or a Satanist. And I'm wondering, having read about your work with uh, rewilding and, and turning the Dunsany estate into a nature reserve, you know, I've heard you say that uh, some people will call you a damned fool or a decadent. Uh, is there sort of a, a parallel between the way people treat Simone and maybe how you've been treated because of what you've done with the rewilding efforts? Ab absolutely. And and ironically, um, funny enough, I mean, you know, there's I have a big problem with poachers, for example. And, and I, I'm very, you know, that movie, if you know me, anyone who knows me and watches that movie, sees a lot of things there that they recognize when when relation to me and even the poachers in that movie i mean poachers is is one of my biggest problems here um because what what your your audience should understand is ireland is very isn't isn't the most progressive place and i live in a particularly very heavy agricultural place and there's a lot of old school farmers and they love to spray chemicals on stuff and that's just how the old days they used to do it and that's the way they want to do it today and i've taken something and I've tried to, to preserve the environment in a different way. And I didn't listen to anybody. And, and when I started doing all this rewilding stuff, I didn't even have a name for it. I just did it. And I took a personal sacrifice. I, uh, I decided to do it. I wasn't getting any money for it. I took a cut on my, on my income, which, believe me, is, is hard, especially when you live in a castle, because you always need to pay for repairs and stuff like that. But I embraced something that I thought had more value, at least to me and to the future. And, um, you know, we had a window shot out from the house by poachers' bullets. Um, you know, we had many incidents where, where deer have been shot and, and, and damage has been done and things like that. And in fact, I put myself in a lot of personal danger because I patrol the lands even at night to stop lamping. Um, <laughs> there's a very good chance that one day I get shot. Um, so I mimic that in the movie because that is one of my main struggles. You know what I mean? And that's, that's, you know, there has been a lot of, well, there was a lot, especially at the beginning, 
there was certainly at the at the beginning there was nobody understood what I was doing, but they thought I was decadent. They were stupid. Now there's a lot of people who do know what I'm doing, and there's a lot of support. But there's also there's the type type of people who want, really want to see it fall. You know, assuming a lot of the it. farmers are upset. Not just farmers, but there's a lot of let's say poachers and hunters and that kind of. And I don't mean when I say hunters, I don't mean guys who go shooting rabbits. I mean guys on with red jackets who ride horses and will chase down foxes and deer because they do that a lot in Ireland. You guys probably don't have that where you live, but it's a it's a it's an imperial tradition. And ironically, for all the reasons the locals have problems with me because of my supposed imperial background, often these same people who who smite me for being for being having my background are very much um reliving the past by by in embracing this essentially this this uh this kind of tradition that was held by by the imperialists themselves so it's almost it's like an eco-imperialism exactly so the problem is i i have i have created quite a lot of enemies like i said we've had vandalism there there's there's had windows shot out i have had death threats I can't park my car in my local town because people will vandalize it. And even that, even that uh, scene in when she goes to the supermarket and, and she gets killer written on my car. I mean, nobody's written killer on my car, by the way, just, but I did come across one guy who was going to slash my tires once. And that's how I got fearful of leaving my car in, in places that I don't, you know, don't have a camera right next to it. Um, but that's, you know, when you, when you stand for anything, you're going to get into trouble. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, and that's the problem that I have come across because I've, I've, I've double tapped. Not only do I represent something from the past, I now represent something of the future. And, and that when you challenge people's status quo, you're going to get a violent reaction. It's just the way it is. Uh, but the thing is, is that in the past, my, my, my family have endured dodging bullets and arrows and cannons and all that stuff. And today, well... Nobody's shooting me with cannons. They might try and take a pot shot at me with with a with a rifle, but the truth is, is that standing for the weak, standing for the defenseless, has always been a tradition of that my family has tried to protect. People have tried to protect our people, and whether they liked liked us or not, we still try and defend the land, defend the people, defend our heritage, and that's what I'm doing today. And by defending the nature, nature is 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 the modern day victim. The average Joe in the street doesn't need any protection anymore, but the environment does. And that's what I, you know, that's our battle of, of, of today is protecting the, the very last remnants of environment that we have. And, and that challenges the status quo. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about theories and concepts that many people don't agree with. They don't think that foxes should be allowed to live. They don't like badgers. They want to destroy things because it, it it goes against their concept of money. And the thing is, is that rewilding is, is allowing a certain amount of chaos within, within the environment to happen. And that goes against what we in Western society want. We, we want everything to be, you know, very categorized in boxes and anything that's a little bit out there just goes against our programming. I've always said, if you want to get rid of uh, racism or prejudice or social injustice, the first thing you need to do is get rid of all levels of prejudice in your mind. My rewilding project, my concept for rewilding, um, 
I looked at it from a philosophical point of view. I thought to myself, well, look, if we mistreat animals, if we mistreat the environment, and we think that an animal is worth less than, let's say, a person, or our dog is worth less than a bird, or sorry, our dog is worth more than a bird, that's the first step into creating prejudice. Then it becomes, I don't like black people, or I don't like this, or I think I'm better than that. When you start to exercise that part of the brain, it's very quick prejudice occurs. So if we want to unlearn prejudice, we have to learn how to treat things with equality. And that goes across all spectrums, not just the human spectrum. And that's what I wanted to embrace with my project and why I'm trying to do it the way I'm doing it. Because I feel that, you know, we, we as the race have to, have to evolve. Our environment has evolved. You know, we evolved to, to a very, very intelligent species that can create all kinds of wondrous things. But we've had a sort of, uh, we have sort of learned a, a pattern of thought that is very highly destructive. And we either have to learn to evolve from that to something superior, or we have to succumb to our nature and destroy ourselves. And I'm frankly prefer to be, you know, step up the genetic ladder and not uh, end up as a, as a, as a dinosaur in, uh, in the future. Have you had any animals return to the land? Any, any wildlife? So many, so many. When I started, there were hardly, there was a few deer. There was a couple of foxes, maybe. I now have badgers. I have seen birds that have turned up that haven't been back for hundreds of years. Like we had the woodpeckers come back for the first time in a hundred years. You know, we had the first breeding pair. Now we have up to 13 in two years. I have birds of prey, such as such as the sparrow hawk. We have red kites. We have all these things that have not been there in my lifetime are now there. Um, you know, and these things are happening every year. Every year we're, we're making more success. Every year something's returning. And that's, it's a beautiful thing to see that happen. Uh, and to know that, you know, all the, the risks, all the, the challenges, because don't get me wrong, these things that I do, it stops me from being able to make movies, which is my real passion, because I have to give up so much of my time in life to do them. But my responsibilities outweighs my personal goals and my responsibilities to the land, to the history, to our, to our, to our collective uh, environment is so important. And it, you know, I stopped thinking as an individual and I started looking at, at us as, as, a, as, a, as a line of people, right? My, our, our lives, we're tapestry and that's what we are. We, we get to make a small mark to the tapestry. And that's what I think we've sort of forgotten. We, we've been promoted to, to be the individual that it's, it's all about gaining. It's about winning. It's all about us. It's not all about us. It's about us as a collective. We are, we are a race. We are, all, we are all a people. And we have to stop looking at as individuals and start looking at as a collective because the environment is a collective also. And I, I was just going to say, just so I, I don't want my listeners to... Uh, misinterpret you and I, I know you've talked about this in the past but i don't think you have uh, a completely romanticized view of uh the history of aristocracies uh in the west either i think you have a sense of of duty and obligation but you also aren't saying that uh every aristocracy has been a uh, noblesse oblige so to speak no and in fact more often than not they haven't but the thing is is i can't change other people I can only change what we have. My family has always tried to do the right thing. Now, 
not always did we make the right decisions. Not always did we do what was popular, but we attempted to be just and that's, and, and to try and improve what we were given. And I think that's a noble pursuit. And, and the thing is in my time, it's not that I am going to do something so selfless. It's, it's, I try and do the best with what I can to, to add to what, and it, it's not about just the family, you know, there's, the people, that's that's what really matters because, you know, there was a aristocracy were given response, were given benefits, but there was also duties. And a lot of people forgot about that. You know, in the old days, you had knights. And, and the first rule of when you were getting knighted, the whole point of the knight was to be a protector of the people, to protect the land, to protect the things that you that you held important with importance. It wasn't just about squandering and in, and enjoying the, the the enjoyment of 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 being wealthy or having having privilege. That was a that was a side thing. There was duties attached, and many people, many families forgot that, and they just took advantage of of, of having more than others. My family always tried not to. You know, we had a saint. We had people who tried to to better the people of of a country. We died as a result of many of the times we did. And look, none of that stuff really is is relevant in 2021, but I'm trying to do the little I can do, which I feel is important. And, you know, I don't want anything for it. It's, it's the duty. How could I not do it? When you get given something, when you get given a gift or a talent or a skill, it's your responsibility to make the most of that gift, you know, because it's precious. And that's, that doesn't matter who you are or where you are in society. Could be talent. It could be. It could be an opportunity. It is your duty to make the most of it and try, and have do something that's beneficial with it. If you're a musician, create great music. If you're a filmmaker, make great art. If you get given a castle, try and do something that 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 you know. When it comes down to your judgment, what did you do with your privilege or your talent or your skill? And you better have a good answer, because so that's I guess the way I see it. What was that? I, I, I just was saying, I hold myself up to a very high regard. I have a lot that I have to do because I was given so much more than everybody else that I have to double down. I have to be, I have to be something positive because if, if I was just a, a guy in a leather jacket enjoying the fruits of, of my life, I would have failed that I would be worse than, 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 than the very vermin that all the en- enemies call me. Because the thing is, I, when it comes down to judgment day, what did I do to improve things? Well, I, I might be able to, to make a small list and I tried my best with the things that I was given. And I feel that that's, that's the big question. Do you think that, that you did right by, by, by the others in your life? And I feel that I've tried to do as much as I can do. I still have a lot of, a lot of journey, a lot of ground to cover. Well, Randall Plunkett, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. I want to give you a chance uh, to let my listeners know how they can watch the Green Sea. And also, uh, just because you mentioned uh, this idea of, of having gifts, what do you consider Simone's gift? I would consider her to have a couple of gifts here. She has the gift of creativity. She's obviously inspired a lot of people in, in, in the film because you can see when she meets Justin, he obviously took a lot of inspiration from her work. She's a voice, and um, and that's that's the thing. But she's also at the same time, 
she's 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 got a story that can inspire others because the the truth of the matter is in that film expressing yourself is very important and that's the same to your listeners like i know a lot of people in in society nowadays are very sad they don't they're not comfortable and expressing yourself is one of the best ways the best medicines for curing depression any of those things so i suppose simone is an example to those people to try and you know express themselves in whatever way that is whether that be creativity or something else could be cooking but you know you are your you are responsible to make yourself happy and that's that's i suppose the the symbol of simone it it's a self help book a self help a story if you like and have you gotten any response to the film from people that were really moved by it? I mean, I was moved by it, so we know that, but. We, I've, I, funny enough, I have. I received a lot of messages from people who really, um, they resonated with her. You know, they said, I was a lot like that. I was so angry. I, I saw so much of myself in that. And that for me as a, as a filmmaker, that's really the, the greatest compliment. Because, you know, it took me a long time and a lot of personal sacrifice to make that movie. It's no way a perfect film or anything like that. But there was a lot of tears. I had friends die on the film. I think my own mother died before the film was released. Um, you I know, think there's an in loving memory at the end for uh, someone I'm blanking on. Yes. The name. Unfortunately, it was finished before my mother could be added to that list. But Yes, uh, Eric Brandon, who was a very close friend of mine. In fact, he's in the film. He plays the big guy in the in the warehouse chasing chasing kid. Uh, he died before the movie. It was his last film. He never got to see it finished. Um, and he was a very, very close friend of mine and was very good to me. And so many people have died. So many people suffered. And I lost so many friends in this film. And when people watched it and enjoyed it and were actually resonated with me, could talk about it, analyzed it in had theories about it. It's really, really um, amazing from, from my perspective, because those are things that I, if you like, suffered alone with. And when people could say, you know what, I had that, or I resonated with that, or even I understood it, it really, it really made me feel, um, it gave me a massive boost. Because that's what it is in the end. We try and express ourselves. And, and this was a sort of story that I felt, you know, it had a lot to do with me and being able to express myself and celebrate some of my shortcomings and uh, and fears and and put them into a into a story and a story that people could enjoy was really for me the it was really the 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 bow on the uh, bow on the present if you like. And how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work with Dunsany Productions and also how can they view the Green Sea? So I have hopefully another movie coming out. It's a horror, so so get rep ready. It's going to be more of the mad stuff that you saw in the Green Sea, but with a horror aspect. I won't tell you too much now, but um, I've got an Instagram that's very heavy with Dunsany, and that's the wildlife stuff. It's called Dunsany Nature Reserve, um, and that you will find all the wildlife stuff. My personal page is Randall Plunkett. You can find me on Facebook or um, Instagram, and I'll be putting up loads of stuff for the upcoming work and um, and all the other stuff that I do. And um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I suppose uh, every bit of support matters. And every time someone sends me a message, it, it's wonderful. I, I, I treat it as a blessing every day. It's a present, you know, and to touch base with people like yourself who really took an interest in the film and, and uh, you know, 
watched it with such close, uh, you know, um, interest. And that for me is fantastic. So I really want to thank you as well so much from the bottom of my heart. It, it is such a, an honor to be able to be invited to something like this and be able to talk about it. And I was just going to say, just for all my listeners, please purchase the film video on demand. Don't go uh, the, the, the piracy way with this. Yeah, I, I will. I'll just put a caveat to that. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, as a guy who went through college, didn't have a lot of money when he was a student, I downloaded a few films in my time. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that there's so little money in this business now. And these days, if you're not really buying the films, um, there's almost no chance for filmmakers like myself to have a second film or a third film. So every bit of money that I get, uh, it goes back into the wildlife because literally I pay for all that. I get no grants. I'm completely independent. So every, every buy does make a difference. It, it also gives me an opportunity to make another movie. So if you like what I do, or you don't even like what I do, but you want to give me a second chance, please purchase or rent the movie legally. And thank you again, Randall Plunkett. Thank you so much, my friend. And, and listen, if you're ever in Ireland, I'd love to see you come and visit. Definitely. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Randall Plunkett on his new movie, The Green Sea, available now on multiple different streaming platforms. I would highly recommend checking it out. As always, if you enjoy the show, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Trust me, I'll be quick with the plugging this time since the show went so long. Essentially, all I'm asking for is a monthly donation, if you can, on the Patreon. There's a $1, $5, $10, and $15 tier. Any amount will help. This month, I'm going to be adding more exclusive content, including a five-parter on the covert history of George H.W. Bush and the Bush family dynasty for $5 and above tier supporters. And of course, at the $10 and $15 tiers, you get a producer's credit shoutout, which leads us to the producer's credit shoutouts for this edition of the show. Producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Catherine, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 or $15 tiers of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. Right.
So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.